0: leading us this morning, team, I'd invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to Matthew. We have three more Sundays and counting today in the lectionary readings from the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're in the 25th chapter, um, and as was mentioned earlier in the announcements, and three Sundays from now, we begin the season of Advent, and would love for you to join us as we uh, journey together uh, through the little devotional, Let Earth Receive Her King, and we think about those themes in Advent. Uh, But as we close out uh, these lectionary readings from the book of Matthew today, we find ourselves in the first 13 verses of Matthew 25. At that time, the king of heaven will be like 10 young bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Now, five of them were wise, and the other five were foolish. The foolish ones took their lamps but didn't bring oil for them. But the wise ones took their lamps and also brought containers of oil. When the groom was late in coming, they all became drowsy and went to sleep. But at midnight, there was a cry, look, the groom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. But the foolish bridesmaids said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps have gone out. But the wise bridesmaids replied, no, because if we share with you, there won't be enough for our lamps and yours. We have a better idea. You go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the groom came. Those who were ready went with him into the wedding. Then the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Therefore, keep alert because you don't know the day or the hour. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, I don't know uh, if you have noticed uh, the increasing use of the word fatigue, especially connected to some other word or words. Um, But as I was thinking about how often I feel like I hear the word fatigue, I did a search on a couple of social media sites and came up with these connections or uh, hashtags, election fatigue, Um, and all God's people said, amen. Uh, (laughs) Amen. Political fatigue, news fatigue, vote count fatigue, electoral college fatigue, interactive map fatigue. Bless your heart, Steve Kornacki. Um, Zoom fatigue, uh, social media fatigue. Ironically, when people complain about being tired of social media, they usually do it on social media, but nevertheless, social media fatigue. Um, Isolation fatigue. I know many of you feel that. Uh, Homeschool fatigue, and all the parents said amen. Amen. But probably the one that is the, <laughs> is the most uh, flourishing hashtag is COVID fatigue. For fatigue is when we get tired, either because we are expecting something to happen and it hasn't happened, or we have so much of something and we wish it would go away, but we then grow numb to it and to its significance as you have probably paid attention with me, at the spiking numbers of COVID cases in our community and nation and world. Many health experts have said it's part of the reason is because of COVID fatigue, is that we're tired. We're tired of talking about it. We're tired of all of the different um, protocols that we have to follow. We're tired of masks and face coverings. And so we pay less attention to it and and as we pay less attention, then the consequences come. I think that I called this sermon, so I, I have to tell you, I usually title sermons on Tuesday, and then by Sunday, there's something completely different. But I think I titled this sermon on Tuesday something like New Creation Fatigue. Uh, so this morning, in order to think about this text and what I'll call kind of New Creation Fatigue, I need you to take your Bible because I need to do some teaching this morning. And I I am sorry that that's who I am. Um, I wish I was a pastor who was like a mother bird who could kind of just digest stuff and then kind of regurgitate it to you in three points that start with the letter B. But that's not me, right? Like, I'm not able to do that. And I would really love you to be better students of the Scripture. And so I really do need you, if you have your Bible, to take it with me this morning and to look at chapters 23 through 25. So as we have been journeying through these lectionary texts, we have recognized that, that Matthew has five major blocks of teaching. And Matthew 23 through 25 is this fifth and final block of teaching. In fact, it's okay to write in your Bible. I give you permission. Above chapter 23, you should write fifth major block of teaching or book five of Matthew. Whatever you need to do to remind yourself that it starts there. And we started last week, we got the beginning of chapter 23. So chapter 23 is Jesus giving this final discourse to the crowds and to his disciples and saying, don't be like the Pharisees. Um, Maybe you can listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. Um, Don't live in that kind of way, and we thought about that last week. But then if you go to chapter 24, chapter 24 begins this way. Now Jesus left the temple and was going away. His disciples came to point out to him the temple buildings, and he responded, Do you see all these things? I assure you that no stone will be left on another. Everything will be demolished. So chapter 24 is this odd kind of text where Jesus talks about what the coming destruction of the temple that we've talked about in the past, likely referring to 80, 70, when Titus the emperor comes in and, and Jerusalem is utterly destroyed. And the early church saw that as a kind of vindication of Jesus and the the resistance that he received from the religious leaders, and in particular the temple that ended up crucifying him. But the text is also about Daniel chapter seven and the son of man overcoming all empires. And so that's caught up in the resurrection of Jesus. So in some ways the temple will be destroyed, but Christ will be raised. But then part of chapter 24 is also not only will Christ be raised, but he will ascend into heaven. And then here's the key thing, he will come again. He will come again, and so chapter twenty four verse forty two says this, therefore stay alert that 's the key theme through this text is stay alert, and how do we stay alert verse forty five who then are the faithful and wise? So we saw this in the text in chapter twenty five that we 'll come back to in just a moment. But it's this idea that now that Christ has ascended into heaven and will return again, we have two options for how we're going to live now as citizens of this kingdom or as citizens of this new creation. We are going to live either as foolish or we're going to live as wise. And so at the end of chapter 24 through chapter 25, we get four parables about what wisdom looks like as we await Christ's return and the fulfillment of the new creation. The one we read is actually the second parable. I'm going to go to the first one in just a moment, but the next two weeks, we'll look at parable three and four. But I have to do some teaching with you this morning, and it's kind of risky, and so hang with me, but I need to talk to you about how I think about and understand the new creation and how I understand the second coming of Christ. And this can be, I will say, this can be a a kind of divisive point for Christians and even a divisive point for us. Uh, the Church of Nazarene, we have an agreed statement of belief. And in that agreed statement of belief, here's what we say about the second coming We believe that our Lord will return, the dead will be raised, and the final judgment will take place. That's about as simplistic a statement as you can make about the return of Christ, it does not include any details. And so there are some folks in our tradition who will say, this is what the second coming of Christ looks like. And some who will say, this is what it looks like. And others who will say, this is what it looks like. And it's interesting when you study our history, Phineas F. Brzee, actually the founder of the Church of Nazarene, had a very different perspective than I think a lot of Nazarenes after Brzee had and came. And so the reason why our statement is so simple is because we don't want to divide over it. And so I will often kind of poke fun at some teaching I don't think is very healthy for us. But I've never really kind of come clean and said, well, here's kind of what I think and how I, I uh, think about the second coming. And so I want to do that in order to think about these parables. Okay, you ready? And I think some folks are going to help me because if, you, um, if you're interested in knowing more about what I'm going to say today, um, I would send you to a couple of places. And I think they're going to drop some links in the chat bar there. Um, One is to a wonderful video uh, made by the Bible Project folks on the relationship between heaven and earth. And so um, if you need short, helpful videos, go to that one. Um, They're also going to give you a video link to N.T. Wright, uh, who I mention often, one of my favorite New Testament theologians, to an interview with him about his book. And there's also a link then to his book. Surprised by Hope, which I think is a wonderful, if you're a reader, I would encourage it. Surprised by Hope is this wonderful exploration of what does the scripture kind of say we should expect and how should we think about the second coming of Christ. So here's what I want to say today, and, and Sally Curl, I saw that you uh, logged on with us. Sally's brother Reuben, is one of my favorite teachers and was so influential in the life of my parents when they were at Pasadena College, but Reuben Welch, used to love to say this. He would say in his sermons, I think that I think this. And so this morning, I want to say with Reuben, I think that I think this. And I'm not just trying to be, um, trying to keep us out of conflict, but I, I think that I think this. Because as we think about future things, that's about the best we can do, right? Is to say, I think that I think this is how we are to look at and interpret these things. But many of us, especially in American Christianity, have been shaped by Um, a kind of expectation of the end times really shaped by like the Left Behind series or those kind of movies that we showed at camp that always kind of scared us that included this idea of the rapture. And the idea is that heaven is somewhere else and at some point God's going to take his faithful out and we will go away and then something will happen here that will lead to the destruction of people here and the destruction of everything. Now, I've hinted at this before, but I'm going to say as directly as I can to you this morning, I think that's a really bad theology. And it's actually a fairly new theology. It's only been around for about 125 years or so, and it's really uniquely an American way of understanding the return of Christ. And I think it's especially a misunderstanding of two texts. So hang with me. If you go Matthew 24, which should already be open for you, there's a story that begins at verse 36. Nobody knows when the day or hour will come, not the heavenly angels and not the Son, only the Father knows. As it was, and here it is, as it was in the time of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the human one. In those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. They didn't know what was happening until the flood came and swept them all away. The coming of the human one will be like that. At that time, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. Mill, One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, stay alert. Now, for about 50 years, uh, thanks to a Larry Norman song that says, whose lyrics are, I wish we'd all been ready. And through the kind of lens of a kind of new Americanized rapture theology, we tend to read that text to say, oh, that's what Jesus is teaching. That when he comes, some, the faithful will be taken away, and the wicked will remain to face judgment. Problem with that is that Jesus says it this way. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the return of the Son of Man. And in the days of Noah, who was left? The righteous or the wicked? And the answer to that is the righteous. Noah and his family were the ones left. When judgment came, it was the wicked who went away. And it was the righteous who were swept away, the text says. But it was the righteous who remained. And so I think that some of what we have been formed by is a misreading of that text. The other, and and I hope I haven't lost you yet, but another is out of Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul in chapter 13 says this, Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about people who have died so that you won't mourn like others who don't have any hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose, so we also believe that God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus. What we are saying is a message from the Lord. We who are alive and still around at the Lord's coming definitely won't go ahead of those who have died. This is because the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a signal of a shout by the head angel and a blast on God's trumpet. And first, those who are dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are living and still around will be taken up together with him in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And that way we will always be with the Lord. So encourage each other with these words. So two things about this text that, again, gets interpreted as though we're going to all fly away, oh Lordy, all fly away, right? We will fly away. The, The reason why we have tended to read that in those lens is because we've kind of mixed these two texts together. And we forget that what Paul is saying is, I want to encourage you about those who have died. Not tell you how things are going to end, but encourage you that those who have died in the Lord are not dead. They are with the Lord, as Paul says, to die is to be with the Lord. But but Jesus never really talks about being out of here. And this text is more likely this, like the bridesmaids in the text that we read in Matthew, who are awaiting the return of the bridegroom, and when he comes, they rush out to meet him and then bring him back to the banquet. T Wright and others would argue that this text is actually about when Christ returns, to rule on earth as it is in heaven, and brings all those who have died in Christ with him. And when the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised and we meet him, we will rush to meet him, but not to go off somewhere, but to like a conquering king coming back to his city or a bridegroom coming for the banquet. We will rush out to meet him and then usher back like Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem descending to earth, we will usher back into the new creation where all things are made new and death is no more and tears are no more. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And because we read Revelation strangely, etc., we end up with this kind of theology that says someday we're going to go out of here. So quickly, I need you to listen faster. Let me tell you how I kind of think that I think about the new creation. That what we see in the Garden of Eden is the way things are supposed to be. God dwelling with humankind in harmony. But that is broken. And heaven and earth then get divided. Heaven being the place where God's will is done and where all things are right before God. Interestingly then, when this covenant is made between God and Israel, when they build the temple, that place where heaven and earth meet together, all of the decorations in the temple are decorations of the garden. It's as though the temple is the place where the Garden of Eden, that relationship is being reestablished. And the idea then is heaven and earth in the temple, if you will, they're meeting together. That thing that has been divided and exiled from each other is now meeting. And and my friend Scott was saying, kissing each other. There's, There's a kissing between heaven and earth that is emerging. And eventually then now as God fills the people with his spirit, this new creation, this making all things new, this heaven and earth meeting together will we'll get out of the temple, we'll, we'll fill Zion, and we'll radiate then throughout the earth as the waters cover the sea. But Christ comes as really the embodiment of heaven and earth meeting together, and he begins to bring others into this new creation. As Paul will say, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. And fascinatingly, When Christ is crucified, the veil of the temple is torn. And we often think about that as now we can go in. It used to be only the priest who's gone through all these purity rites can get into that right relationship back with God. But the idea of the veil being torn is not that we can now get in. It's that the new creation has now gotten out. As I love to say on Easter, be careful today for Christ is on the loose, right? Like the new creation has gotten out and is now filling the earth. And we become participants in that new creation until Christ comes again and that new creation is restored in its fullness. And if we die, as Paul says, in the meantime, we know that we are with the Lord in that realm where God reigns, awaiting all things to be made new. And when the trumpet sounds, those who have died in Christ will join those of us who are still alive in Christ, awaiting the resurrection. Are you with me? I think that's so beautiful. All right. So now... I promise. Now let's get to the sermon. Um, So the reason that is so important is because if we don't understand the return of Christ in that way, I think we will totally misunderstand what these four parables are trying to do. So quickly, chapter 24, verse 45. Who then are the faithful and wise servants whom their master puts in charge of giving food at the right time to those who live in his house? Happy are those servants whom the master finds fulfilling their responsibilities when he comes. I assure you that he will put them in charge of all his possessions. But suppose those bad servants should say to themselves, my master won't come until later. And suppose they begin to beat their fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunks. The master of those servants will come on a day when they do not expect him, at a time they couldn't predict. He will cut them in pieces and put them in a place with hypocrites. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. So the first parable about being wise and being alert says, listen, the new creation is about doing justice. We knew that from the Old Testament. We've told you what is good. And what does the Lord require to you? Of you to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. And so those who are now new creation are a people who live in the world as though the new creation has already come. So the old boundaries that allowed us to mistreat people who are not like us or think of them as enemies or think of them as people who should be excluded from our life, that is done. The new creation has come and now he has put us in charge of participating in that new creation. But what happens if we say, hmm, It's being delayed. And it's so hard to overcome these boundaries. And we sure made a lot more money when we were exploiting our neighbor. And we sure gained a lot more power when we were self-centered. What will happen, Christ says, when the fullness of the new creation breaks and we who have been called to participate in God's justice have stopped doing that? You don't want to read. I mean, you don't want to read, read what happens. Judgment comes. Because those who've been new creation and asked to participate in that have failed. So what I want to think about in these three, four weeks is that these parables are each teaching us qualities of those who are living and waiting for the new creation to come in its fullness. And that first parable teaches us that the people who are of a new creation do not stop doing justice, do not stop loving mercy, do not stop walking humbly. The parable before us today, strange. We're used to weddings where a couple sends out invitations or now even um, really cool pictures with save the date, right? And we all know when it's coming and we all get ready and prepared. But in those days, they knew that the wedding was coming, but, but oftentimes, especially if the bridegroom is traveling or if the bridegroom is a warrior or if the bridegroom is gone, on a journey, you never know. Like United Airlines is usually delayed, but not that delayed, right? Like you never know when that person's coming back. And so you have everything ready and you kind of know the approximate time that this wedding feast is going to take place, but you're not sure because there are so many unknowns before that bridegroom makes it back. And so the bridesmaids are supposed to be ready and, and there's three really important symbols in the story. There's first of all, the wedding which is such a frequent picture of the new creation. But the reason for it is it's, it's as though, like the Garden of Eden and the new and old creation, heaven and earth broken apart. The image of the wedding is those people who've been prepared for the new creation and the one who can institute the new creation joining together in marriage and intimacy and love, a reuniting of heaven and earth is the picture of the wedding. That's coming. Are you ready? And these bridesmaids are called to be ready with two things, a light. A light. Much like Jesus says earlier in the first sermon, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And so what are they to do? In a world without electricity, they are to be the instruments of light in the world. And the other symbol is oil which is almost always a symbol of the Spirit of God. We'll come back to this in a moment. But there's this idea that they are awaiting this reuniting of heaven and earth for the new creation to come together. In the meantime, they are to be lights of that new creation, empowered by the Spirit to be that instrument of light. I thought about closing the service this morning with give me oil in my lamp, give me burn it, burn it, burn it, right? Like every kid who's ever gone to camp, would join in, but um, that's part of the symbol is the oil is there to make sure that the light does not go out, but what do they do? The bridegroom is delayed. They didn't pay attention to the oil. And eventually, at the wrong time, because the bridegroom shows up at midnight, the new creation comes when it's unexpected. They've run out of oil. Their light has gone out. And there's nothing they can do they've lived foolishly and so if the first parable is about how we have to do justice the second parable is that the quality of those who are living in the new creation awaiting the second coming of Christ and the making of all things new we are people who persevere in love persevere in the spirit persevere in lives of the new creation Sometimes we think about this text as, as neglect, and, and I think I've even preached this text before, as the problem is distraction. And, and let me tell you, there's a lot of things to distract us. And I, I do believe that can be true. Uh, to quote Neil Postman, we can amuse ourselves to death. And in this case, we can amuse ourselves right out of the persistence of the kingdom. But as I've been thinking about, especially these last several months, this time coming to this text, it just feels like perseverance is hard. It's hard. I've shared with you that I've done a lot of reading these last few months, but in particular in two areas. When COVID first broke out, I, I grabbed three or four of my favorite books on the early church and did a lot of reading on the early church. And then as some of the racial issues began to spring up over the summer, I've just done a lot of reading on the civil rights movement and and kind of the heroes of that movement. As I think about the early church, these are people who had to persevere. (laughs) They believe Christ is Lord, Christ is resurrected from the dead, and Christ is coming again. But now what happens? Well, 11 out of the 12 apostles are martyred. The one who isn't martyred ends up in exile on an island. I read a wonderful biography of the Apostle Paul, actually, by NZ Wright. And it just reminded me, again, of, of Apostle Paul. <laughs> had some successes in his life, but he had a lot of failures. I mean, this is a guy who's in prison. He's shipwrecked. He's stoned and left for dead. He has fights even with his friends, and they end up breaking up for a time and having to go a different direction. I mean, this is a guy... <laughs> who has to keep saying Christ is Lord, Christ is Lord despite any evidence because right now Caesar is Lord and keeps pushing him around or the religious leaders are in charge and keep pushing the church around. And so I'm amazed in the early church at three centuries of sisters and brothers in Christ who persevered believing that the love of Christ will overcome all things that they read the book of Revelation this way, that the book of Revelation is a pair of glasses to interpret how the culture and the powers want to squeeze us into its mold. But in chapter 5 of Revelation, there is a scroll of history. And the revelator weeps because no one is found worthy to open the scroll or to unroll history, except don't weep. The Lion of Judah is worthy. He can open the scroll and he can undo the seals. But then it's crazy. The revelator looks and realizes what he heard was lion is actually lamb, slaughtered and standing. The image being that the one who controls history is not like the aggressive lion, but is the self-giving love of the lamb. And they too then should be reflections, people marked by the lamb. And even in chapter 19, that chapter then encourages them that one day all the Babylons will fall, but the new creation will come in its fullness. It's led triumphantly by the return of Christ. But how does he come? He comes with robes that are already stained with blood, but not their blood, his. And he bears a sword, but it's not in his hand, it's in his mouth. These are a people who are to persist in love and persist in speaking the goodness of the new creation. And who are convinced that one day the new Jerusalem in chapter 21 will descend and all things will be renewed and death will be no more and tears will be no more and animosity will be no more. And there are people who live that way and there is barely any evidence around them that that is true. But they persevere even in the face of death. As I've been reading about civil rights folks, I have shared, I'm especially drawn to the biography of John Lewis by John Meacham. What I was struck by, in addition to a number of things, was just how many times he should have given up. Not only beaten on the bridge in Selma, but but those who, the death and disappearance of civil rights workers, the bombing of the 16th Street Church in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed four little girls. And then this movement, this peaceful movement for justice that then had to deal with the death of Medgar Edvers and the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the assassination of Malcolm X and the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the assassination of Robert Kennedy like in successive years. Like at what point when you're a part of that movement do you say, forget it. Either this is never going to happen or it's never going to happen in the way of peace. When do you give up on love? When, if you're him, when do you let the the vision of a beloved community go? When are you done? When are you out of oil? And the light goes out. You see, as I think about this text and what it calls us to, I'm concerned about the amused. Amused. There are a lot of distractions in our world today that I think draw us away from from being the lights of the new creation. But this morning, forgive me, I'll get emotional. Deb and I this week have talked to probably five or six either former students or I think of them as children, but people we've discipled into faith whose lights are flickering, if not out, not because they've been amused, but because they are so disillusioned. Disillusioned by a a people who should have lamps full of oil lighting the kingdom, but have decided to be reflections of something else. It is not an easy task to keep doing the justice of the new creation, and it is not an easy task to persevere. And that's why the great news, if you're still with me this morning, the great news of this text is the oil. We are not called to persevere in pursuit of the new creation by, as I love to say, by gritting our teeth and saying, this time we'll keep our light lit. (laughs) I couldn't help but think about a Tenebrae service years ago at Pasadena where we forgot to check the oil in the Christ light before we got going. And Jesus died too quickly. The light went out in the middle of it. And I had to crawl. <laughs> I crawled with a lighter back behind the choir to relight Jesus. Only problem was as soon as I lit him, he went right back up. <laughs> the problem was not the wick. The problem was not the lighter. The problem was we were out of oil. And this text is not an invitation to grit our teeth and keep our light lit. It is an invitation to stay connected to the source of life, to dwell in the life of the Spirit, and to allow the oil of the Spirit to help us to keep doing justice, but to help us to persevere when everything in us just says, I just think the bridegroom must have been captured along the way. You're not coming. Let's go to bed. Start a new plan. Is the spirit that helps us to persevere. That's why Paul can write this in Galatians 6. Do not get tired of doing good. Do not get tired of doing good. Do not get tired of doing good because in time we will have a harvest if we do not give up. God, help us today. Help us to not stop participating in the justice, mercy, and humility of the new creation. Don't allow us to think, oh, this is taking so long. It's just easier if we do things a different way. Help us persevere. Help us persevere. Help us persevere. Give us oil in our lamps. Keep us burning. (laughs) Give us oil in our lamps, we pray. It is easy for us to get distracted. I, I really do not think this is about emotion. Do we feel like our lamp is burning today? It is about dwelling in the Spirit. It is about allowing your Spirit to empower us to be the lights of the new creation that you have called us to be. And so I pray that today for us. Yeah, there are a lot of things going on around us, but you have called us to be the church, to be a people whose, whose hearts, whose lives, whose energies continue to trust and to know that the new creation has broken in because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you are Lord of all things and you will come again and make all things new and so may we persevere. May we continue to do good knowing that we will reap someday the harvest of a new creation. I think that I think this today and I may be wrong but I don't think you invite us to hope that we'll just endure and then get out of here someday. I am convinced that, our, that the hopes you have for us are much bigger. The hopes of a transformed creation where heaven and earth finally reconnect and where the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And may you reign today today And may you reign forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. May it be so in us, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.